And we begin uh, a series, uh, at least uh, a series that when I'm preaching uh, that we'll be doing in looking at the Lord's Prayer. Now, I said uh, series, and when I'm doing it, um, normally when we do a series, that's what we do. Uh, but during the summer, there'll be several different people that'll be preaching, particularly when I'm either gone or uh, occupied all week um, and not able to prepare. And we'll be blessed with what the Lord uh, has to say to us through that, but I didn't want to assign uh, uh, them to text. Uh, their people are those who will be speaking to us and preaching will be sharing what the Lord lays on their heart. Uh, but in the weeks that I am in the pulpit, we'll be working our way through a very familiar passage found in Matthew 6, part of the Sermon on the Mount, actually the, the center part of the Sermon on the Mount that many would consider to be the, the, the central teaching of, of, of Christianity. Uh, and we'll be looking at the different parts of the Lord's Prayer. Now, if you've been in church at any length of time, and maybe even if you're not churched, you're familiar with uh, the Lord's Prayer, at least somewhat. Uh, as we begin, before we kind of jump into our passage this morning, and even before we read, just a couple of things to, to note for those of you particularly that are, are Bible students. Um, uh, the Lord's Prayer is actually uh, designed for both those who are beginners and who uh, would consider themselves experts, whether in the faith or in prayer. In other words, if you don't know what to pray, that's the very reason that Jesus instructed. Jesus' disciples had asked him, and more we see that in, in Luke's account, how do we pray? And the Lord gave them this as a model for prayer. And yet, because it's a model for prayer, uh, it is not something that we move beyond. It's not just for the elementary uh, ways of prayer, uh, but it creates uh, a, a pattern uh, for us that we can never exhaust. The Lord's Prayer is also intended to be a model, and it's not primarily a mantra. And what I mean by that, while it's perfectly appropriate for us to use it as a liturgical tool, and we do that from time to time, and I had actually intended for us to do it today and didn't realize until our bulletin was finalized that I neglected to put that in there for us to do, um, we will do so at other times. The primary purpose is to shape our prayers. Again, Jesus never gave this to us and said, okay, how do you pray? Pray this. He says, pray like this. And it's, it's, it's more of a model than it is a mantra. Something that many people don't recognize about the Lord's Prayer is that there are tables of the Lord's Prayer. And by the word tables, I'm making the connection with the Ten Commandments. We're told that there are two tables, two tablets of the Ten Commandments. The first four are the relationship with God, and the last six are the relationship that we have with the world around us. In the Lord's Prayer, the same way. The beginning and the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer are all oriented toward God, our relationship toward God. And then the last three petitions, God is still involved, but we're asking for God, His blessing, His grace, that we would be able to navigate in this world. And so there's a, a table uh, both of our, our relationship with God and the horizontal relationship with uh, this world. But ultimately what we need to recognize about the Lord's Prayer is that it's, also, it's intended to expand our view of God. And that's my hope as we look at this. My plan is not primarily to say, okay, here's how we improve our prayer life, but to look at each of the different aspects of this Lord's Prayer this morning, the, the opening address, and to expand our view, our appreciation of, of who God is and the relationship that we have with Him. And so with that understanding, let's now turn to God's Word. I'm going to begin reading in verse 5 for the sake of context, reading through verse 13. Hear the Word of our God. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, as we come, we give thanks to you for the words of instruction and the words of revelation, that which teaches us how we are to live, and even more so for that which teaches us who you are and how we are able to relate to you. I pray that as we consider the familiar phrase this morning, that you would continue to speak to us and shape us in our minds, in our hearts, and therefore in our lives. That we would not be a people who merely knows stuff, but we would be a people who does right and walks according to your way. And in so doing, we find joy, we find that we become a blessing to others, and that we would honor you. And so, Lord, take these words as we look at them, my words as I share them, and shape us to the glory of your name. We pray in Christ Jesus, our Redeemer, our King. Amen. In his contemporary classic, Knowledge of the Holy, the incredibly quotable A.W. Tozer says this, what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. I'm going to say that again because it's simple but easy to miss. What comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. Think about that for a moment. And now think about what comes to your mind when you think of God. The answer could be many. There are many, many things that could come to our mind. There are many things that should come to our mind when we think of God. Maybe the fact that God is holy and he transcends our ability to, to truly to sense and see him. Maybe the power uh, that we're struck by as we see even the power of nature, which is just an expression, just a, a fraction of what he is like his power. Maybe you think in terms of his all-knowing, you're struck by the mysteries, things that you want to know, and you know that God knows all things, and you desire to know more. There are many, many things that can come to mind that are all true about God. But perhaps the most important thing that we ought to think that ought to come to our minds when we think of God is that God is our Father. That's what Jesus is teaching us as he opens this prayer, this model prayer that we're looking at this morning. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven. He's inviting everyone who is praying to be thinking of God as a father. 
When Jesus taught that, it was an incredibly scandalous thing to do because we may be very comfortable with that whole idea, at least to, to some degree, because if you've been in church, if you've read your Bible, you, you've heard that maybe all of your life, so it, it doesn't seem particularly foreign. But when Jesus was declaring that we ought to speak to God and address him as Father, it was incredibly scandalous. Nobody spoke to God as being that familiar. And even the different religions uh, don't speak to God in that way. A good Muslim would never address God as Father. It was very unusual, if not, uh, uh, never happened for, for the Jewish people to speak of God as Father. There was so much reverence that is to be given toward God that to be that familiar just was incredibly scandalous. But Jesus in the New Testament, we see, refers to God as Father over 170 times. And so this is not just kind of a one-off that he says in, in one lecture, you know, to speak to God as Father, but 170 times he constantly talks about my Father, my Father, and then he talks about those who belong to him, my Father is your Father. Jesus is very serious that we, what comes to our mind when we think of God is that we need to think of God as our Father. But let's be honest. For many people, the idea of God as Father is packed with complexity. Not just in our contemporary culture, but it has always been true. And so before we jump into what it means that God is our Father, I want to touch on something that it does not mean that God is our Father. The fact that Jesus tells us that we are to speak to God as our Father does not mean that God is male. Now, some of you are cringing right now, and maybe a few are applauding. By the time I'm done explaining this, it's going to be reversed. Some of you will say relieved, and others of you will be cringing, perhaps. But I, I have to tell you, because there's so much confusion that's out there. I read even last night that there's a, a new book that, that came out by uh, someone who, you know, just feels um, that this idea of God as a father is just too exclusive, and so she's written a children's study volume uh, called Mother God, which I don't recommend. Um, <laughs> but some of the concerns are legitimate. God as a father it seems to suggest that we should think of God as male, and the scriptures are full. God speaks of himself over and over using both male and female imagery in the scripture. God created both male and female because neither male or female nor female is sufficient to give us some understanding of who God is. He made us male and female so that together we might have some approximation, some understanding of the nature of God. And so God does at different times. And I, I use the message, talk the message. He speaks of himself, likens himself to like a, a mother hen. In other cases, he uses different feminine characteristics. And so therefore, it's not appropriate for us to just perpetuate certain abuses of, uh, of our understanding of God, which are actually perpetuating ignorance that, that God is male. God transcends gender. Now, saying that, it opens up another can of worms, and it's not, I'm not suggesting that God is gender-confused, nor there's reason for gender confusion. God very specifically says he's made male and female, and what he's made, he has made good, and he's made for a reason. And there's a reason that God took the woman from the side of the man, and not from the foot, and not from the head. is because there's an equality 
of men and women that sometimes is not seen and not recognized in the church. And so if we're going to understand God, we need to understand that God transcends our gender stereotypes. But one final note on that is this. The reason that I say that I wouldn't recommend Mother God or Person God, which is also sometimes thrown out there, or, or those that uh, you know would open this prayer, Our Mother in Heaven, is because God himself has not said that. We, we call God Father because Jesus says that's the way that we are supposed to refer to God. That's the way that we are to think of God. And I don't want to be trite about this, but in a generation that where we're getting pushed back because, you know, somehow everybody should pick their own gender preferred uh, pronouns. Overwhelmingly and almost exhaustively, exclusively, God uses male pronouns to identify himself. And therefore, if we want to respect people with the pronoun preferences, then oughtn't we respect God with the pronoun choices that he chooses as well? All right, now everybody's attention I've got, probably angered most in some way or another, but with all the confusion, it's just something that needs to be said. The, the whole idea of God as Father is filled with complexity. But even in a more practical note, moving away from you know, the cultural issues and the cultural confusions, it's, it's also filled with complexity because... Let's face it, sometimes people struggle with thinking of God as Father because their own fathers were, let's just say, duds. There are some of you who are here who had fathers who were absent, or fathers who were distant. Some of you here maybe have even had fathers who were abusive. And consequently, while you know that the Scripture says that we ought to refer to God as a father because of your own relationship, your own relationship with your father, you find it very difficult to see this description, this way of, of thinking of God as something to be uh, drawing you closer. It, it's just very difficult for you to process that. I mean, how, how should somebody... Think of God when their own father was a dud and was a failure. And even for those among us that had good fathers, Jesus was very clear. Even the best of fathers, by comparison to God, were evil. Every, even the best of the fathers who are here have their times of pettiness and selfishness. And maybe their focus is more on their career or on their lawn than it is some, on their kids. This is a reality. And it's one that we need to deal with if we're going to be able to look at God and consider God a father. I want you to hear first these words from Frederick Dale Bruner in his commentary on the, the Lord's Prayer. The remedy for a bad father is not a, the still greater removal of any father figure at all. It is the gift of a finally good father that Jesus gives us in the Lord's Prayer. And, and so what he's saying to those of you who struggle with the idea of God as a father because of the shortcomings, the failures, the abuses of your own fathers, is not to eliminate the idea of fatherhood entirely. 
It's to recognize that Jesus gives us the gift of a truly and completely good father when he says that we are to see God as our father. Maybe a little more practical, listen to these words from Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon. We do not call God Father because we have had certain positive experiences with our biological fathers, and therefore we project those experiences on God. All human fathers are measured, judged, and fall short on the basis of our experience of God. God, the Father, stands as judge against all human fatherhood, and to pray to God as the Father challenges the status quo for all human fatherhood. In other words, what they're saying is, regardless of what your relationship with your father, whether your father fell short in your estimation, or whether your father was pretty good and measures up, nobody measures up because God is the standard and everybody falls short in that. And even those who fall short, we have a father. And the father in heaven is the standard and that challenges the status quo, whatever your thoughts are, we are to think of God as our Father. And in so doing, we are able to recognize and sometimes in a therapeutic way, acknowledge the the shortcomings of our fathers and we who are fathers to acknowledge our, our own. But even the worst of experiences in God's grace, it's God's grace that he gives us this right, this opportunity to relate to God as our Father in heaven. But as we look at the prayer itself in, in these opening words, we need to recognize this. But recognizing God as our Father in heaven shapes our perspective. As one commentator says, it gives us height and width and depth to live our lives in this world. When we think of God as Father, it gives us depth. It takes us to the depths of the gospel itself. Because we need to ask this question, who has the right to call God Father? Only in the most general way, only in the broadest sense, is God the Father of all humanity. He is the creator, therefore he's the progenitor, therefore you know, everything has its being, everyone has their being. And because of that truth, every person, whether they are in the family of God or rebelling against the family of God, whether they don't even believe that there is a family of God, they have inherent dignity because they were created after the image of God. But scripture over and over again says that not everybody who is born, not everybody who is, who is walking this earth, though created by God and after the image of God, is a child of God. And so who has the right to call God Father? The scripture tells us only those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to what Jesus tells us, what we hear in, in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Did you catch that? To all who receive him, to who believe in his name, in other words, rest in, in, in who Jesus Christ is, all who have received Christ, he gives the right to become children of God. And it is only those who are in Christ Jesus who have received him by faith and repentance of not only our actions of sin, but our, our very sinful nature. 
And then believing that Jesus came, the Father had sent him to die in our place, to rise again for our hope and our redemption. Only those who receive Jesus as the Savior, therefore, have the right to call God Father, because only those who have trusted in Jesus Christ are children of God. And so the whole idea of God as Father takes us into the depth of the gospel. It's not just a title. It's not just a label. It is a reality. And it is a gift that is to be received by faith. The word in heaven speaks to the, the height by which we are to look at God. It is helpful in one sense when we are prone to get too chummy. We focus almost exclusively on, on the love of God, which when I say focus exclusively, it's not that we focus too much. You cannot focus too much on the love of God. But we can focus on the love of God at the exclusion of other truths and other realities. And so for the fact that we speak of our Father who is in heaven is not only a distinction of geography uh, between our Father who, you know, is, uh, you know, in Toledo, uh, but it reminds us of the holiness of God, that he is the one who transcends all time, all place. He is the one who created all things by speaking them into existence. It reminds us of the awesomeness of our God, so that while we are able to draw close to him because of what he has done for us, we still recognize the difference and give him the respect and the honor and the glory that is due his name. But one of the things that's not recognized, at least not on the surface of things, is that while it speaks of the height, it also speaks of the nearness of God. See, the phrases here that we translate, and most of our translation says, our Father in heaven, the, the actual uh, Greek is being used here is, is plural, it's in the heavens. And it's not a significant difference in some ways. It's not like there's, you know, different cities, different places. Uh, but it, in the heavens is a phrase, and particularly the Hebrew understanding of that, uh, is, you know, a distinction from where we are. And in the Hebrew understanding, heaven is not just a, a place that is far off. The heavens are all around us. So where is the heavens? It's just anything that's outside of us. And then moves on exponentially as far as or further than the, the universe itself. And so while we think of our Father who is in heaven and recognize that in one sense he is far off, we also are able to think of a man nearness because our Father who is in the heavens, who is also always present, because the heavens are all around us. J.I. Packer says this, when the Creator said, is said to be in the heaven, the thought is that he exists in a different plane from us rather than a different place. In other words, it's not we're here and somebody else is 2,000 miles away, and we can measure that. God is present everywhere, including here with us, because the heavens are all around us. He just is existing in a different plane, not in a different place. And so while the word in heaven reminds us of the awesomeness and holiness of God, it also reminds us of the nearness of God. And that shapes the way, it shapes our perspective. And the word our, simple as it may be, is a powerful and an important word. It speaks to the width by which we are to see the reign of God. 
So the word our immediately challenges our individualism and our tendency towards isolation. Jesus said, pray like this, not my Father, but our Father. And there's a world of difference. In some traditions, people like to sing, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And that may be one of your favorite hymns, and apologize, we're not singing here. And my apology is really not apologetic, but, you know, I'm... I don't like disappointing people, but we're just not going to do it for all sorts of reasons we could talk about another time. But for the moment, let's assume that we all like that song, and that song speaks to us. And, and it speaks to us because we like this imagery that I come to the garden alone. Just me and God. Over and over in the scriptures, even if we're going to brace that, we would hear the Lord Jesus Christ uh, saying this as well. You know, you might come alone, but when you get here, you're not going to be alone. Because I got lots and lots of friends, and I've got a really, really big family from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And some of God's people don't look like you, and they don't think like you, and they don't act like you, and they don't do the things that you do. And let's get real some of God's people are some of the weirdest people you're ever going to meet because it's us. We just don't think so. And the word our, the word our shapes our perspective because it reminds us immediately that we are not a bunch of individuals who are saved and somehow are going to be stuffed in our own little apartments. But Christianity, by its very nature, is communal. God has saved a people. And that people is encompassing of every people's on the face of the earth from every generation in all of history. We are not alone, and we are not designed to be alone. And so the word our shapes our perspective. Every word in this opening, as simple as it may be, is pregnant and shapes the way that we see God and then the way that we see the world and see our own place in this world. <clears throat> Recognizing God as our Father in heaven shapes our perspective. But we also need to recognize that embracing the reality of God as our Father, who is in heaven, it shapes our experience. Specifically, it gives us access, it gives us intimacy, and it gives us an identity. When I think of access, there's an access that belongs to children. You may have heard the story of a soldier who, during the Civil War, had experienced a, a series of calamities, both injuries in his own life and then um, tragedy back home. So much so that he had earned the opportunity to request a leave from the president. His officers above him said, look, there's a whole lot. You need to take care of some things. They stationed nearby in the D.C. area. If the president says you can go home, you can go home. And so he made his way to Washington, D.C., made his way to the White House, got to the White House door, and was turned away by the guards, you know? You don't just show up at the White House even then and, and get in, and, and certainly don't get in and to see the president. Tried to plead his case, said that the, you know, his superior officers said that he could come. He might have even had a, a note to give to them. The guards weren't impressed. They would not let him in through the doors. And so the man turns away, moves out and toward the street and kind of sits down on the curb, kind of thinking, incredibly disappointed, incredibly frustrated. 
wondering what is he going to do now and how does he do that? And, and, and it was clear on his countenance. And while he's there kind of contemplating these things, a, a young boy kind of walks by on the street, uh, not really paying attention to the whole thing, but notices this guy. And says, Mr., is there anything wrong? And he, the man, for whatever his reason, decided he's going to share this with this, this young boy, share his story, his frustrations, his disappointment with his young boy. The boy thought for a moment and said, come with me. And for whatever reason, the soldier decided, well, i got nothing else, so he follows them. So he follows the young boy, and they walk towards the White House, and they walk up to the, to the front doors where the guards are standing, and the boy just walks right past the guards. They say nothing, and the man just follows him, feeling a little uncomfortable. They turn him away, wondering if they're going to come and arrest him, but nobody comes. And then he continues to follow the boy, and he follows the boy down the hallway for a while. And while they're going down the hallway at different stations, they pass, pass armed military personnel. Uh, those who are, are guard, soldiers who, who are guards. Some of them are high-ranking officers that are, are, are nearby. And feeling very uncomfortable, he just continues to follow this boy. And then they're standing outside the Oval Office, and he's now quite intimidated. And the young boy, without even hesitation, not knocking, he just opens the door and walks in. And the guy kind of follows, but he doesn't enter the door, but he sees and through this open door, there's Abraham Lincoln sitting. And he's talking with his Secretary of State. And Lincoln stops the conversations, and he turns to the door, first a little bit annoyed, and then he looks at the boy and says, what can I do for you, Tad? And then Tad Lincoln shared with his father this man's story. Lincoln heard, and Lincoln gave him a pardon, and the man was able to go. See, this man had no access on his own right, even when there are important and powerful people who would tell him that if you can get the president to give you permission, but the son of the president is able to pass by everything else into the presence he gives access, not only for him, but to his friends. And Jesus Christ, who is God's son by nature, says that we get, by God's grace, the same benefits of access to our God. Listen to what Paul writes in, in Ephesians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, this by the purpose of Jesus Christ coming was that he might redeem us, and that by believing in him, not only are we have access through him, but now we are adopted as his children. We are adopted as his sons, and so we have access to come into the presence of God at any time. And he receives us. There's an incredible access. But even in that passage, we see not only an access, but we see an intimacy here. See, the passage says that we are not only made children of God, and therefore we can come before our Father, uh, but as Jesus taught and as Jesus did, we also, who have trusted in Christ, have the right to cry out to God, not just as Father, but Abba, Aramaic, for Daddy. There is an intimacy that we are able to have with God because he has adopted us by his grace through faith and what he has done in Jesus Christ. We now, by God's grace and adoption, have every right that Christ, who is the only begotten Son of God, has. Everyone. But there's also something else in here in terms of the intimacy that we need to touch on because it kind of goes back to one of the things I touched on a moment ago with sonship. Here we are again, all those male pronoun things. 
Why doesn't it say sons and daughters? And there are some translations that do say sons and daughters. And it's not entirely wrong to call sons and daughters because the passage without any question and never has it been debated has in its view both men and women. But when you choose to translate it sons and daughters, you actually rob it of a theological significance and we are the poorer for it. See, when he says we are adopted into sonship, that includes both men and women. And it's not because it's the only way an archaic, you know, patriarchal culture understood it, and so now because we are enlightened, we can excuse it, dismiss it. We need to embrace it just as they did. Because in a culture that only gave privileges to sons, only sons had rights, only sons were inherit would receive inheritance, what Jesus has done and what Paul is elaborating is that both men and women receive the same rights as sons. It's not that you are no longer daughters of God or that there's a preference to being a son or a daughter. It is that that has now been broken down. And so it's kind of the label. It's kind of a tongue in cheek. It is, it is kind of poking fun at the foolishness of the diversity idea of, the, of just the patriarchy that only men should have privileges. It's saying, okay, if only sons are going to have benefits, well, then I declare you who are male, you are my sons, and I declare you who are my female, you who are female in Christ, then you're also sons. Sons, uh, you know, we have all the rights and privileges that belongs to sons. We have the spirit of sonship. And, and when we translate it sons and daughters, it doesn't translate. It doesn't have the same power. But there is an intimacy because we now have that right. And to those who he gave the right to sonship, which is all the rights, they're the ones that have the right to cry out Abba, to relate to God, not only as a, a father you know, who cares and who provides and who protects, but there's an intimacy. There is an intimacy that those who are in Christ have, whether male or female, we are blessed by what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And yet so many Christians, even if you know it in your head, it is difficult for us to embrace this. We have such an orphan mindset. And so that when we talk to God as our father, even as our daddy, we're prone to try to bargain with him. We make promises, I won't do this, or I will do this, Lord, just, you know. We lose sight of what it means to have the privileges of children. And it's a great illustration that I've used in other times, but it perfectly applies to this situation. Some of you have heard me use it before. Others, it'll be new to you. But if you've ever gone and seen the play Little Orphan Annie or seen it on TV, there's a scene, in, at least in, in some productions of Little Orphan Annie, where Annie has finally been adopted from the orphanage by Daddy Warbucks. This incredibly wealthy man brings his new adopted daughter home for the first time. And he, when she gets there and the doors are open, the staff is all lined up and everything is polished and is prim. And they're there in this huge parlor and the majestic stairways leading to the upper floors are there in front of them. And Annie is there and she's taking it in, having never experienced a place like this. And she's just speechless for a moment. And in the silence, Annie Warbucks then turns to says, so what do you think, Annie? 
And she says, it's beautiful. And then after a moment, the head servant comes up to Annie and says, so Annie, where would you like to begin? She takes another gaze around this parlor and the steps and the majesty and the opulence of the room. And as an orphan, she says, not recognizing what it means to have been adopted, she says, well, get me a bucket and a rag and I'll start with the stairs. She has no clue. She has no clue what it means that she has been adopted because she has been loved. And we have no understanding. And sometimes our lack of understanding gets in the way. The lack of our understanding of the intimacy robs us also of our identity. See, John said in his epistle, because he's reminding the readers as we need to be reminded, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Not because we've earned it, not because we are better than anybody else, but because God and his grace has chosen a people and those who belong to him are those who believe in him because those who believe in him are those to whom he gave the ability to believe. It is God who has adopted a people as an expression of his love and given the right to relate to God as father, as daddy. And every promise that belongs to Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, belongs to you who have been adopted and not only adopted, born of his spirit, born again. So you're doubly God's by faith. Because by believing, it's because you've been born again. And then once you've been born again into this new family, take care of all the legal issues, now you're adopted as well. Nobody, nobody can take you out of the hands of your God and Father who loves you. And so when we think of these words, our Father in heaven, it seems so familiar and while maybe comforting, there is a, a depth that shapes our perspective and embracing them shapes our experience of life in this world. Now these words, our Father in heaven, for some of you who are here this morning, are an invitation for you to come and join the family. In other words, you're not sure of your relationship with God, you, by the depth of the gospel that's inviting you, Jesus says, pray like this, he's inviting you to believe that this is yours when you're trusting in him and you would enter the family and every privilege is yours. But for most of us, I suspect, who are here, who have already been children of God, and to some degree or another, we, we have some understanding of that. These words, every time we hear them, every time we pray them, every time we think of them, it is an invitation to a deeper, richer, fuller experience of our relationship with God. God invites us into that. And we experience and we express that intimacy and that identity, you know, as the children of God, through worship and even through prayer. See, it is said that prayer, which Jesus is teaching us here, is the conversational aspect of a love relationship with God our Father. Every relationship that is going to be strengthened, is going to be built, it involves communication. Communication involves talking. Well, how do you talk with one who exists on a different plane? We talk to him through prayer, and he talks to us by his spirit and his word. We commune with God. It is a way that we develop intimacy. But each time we do that, we are rethinking God. Each time we speak with him, we recognize he's our father. He is our daddy. 
because the gift of, gift of Jesus gives us the right to think of God and to pray to God, our God who is in heaven. Father, bless us as you have already blessed us, but bless us with an understanding of what an incredible gift these simple words are. That as we worship you, as we walk with you, as we speak with you, we would do so not as one who is distant, but one who has loved us beyond our comprehension. Enable us by your Spirit and through your Word to grow, to understand how high and wide and long and deep is your love for all who are in Christ Jesus. To the praise of your glory and grace. Amen.